Blog Talk Radio. everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we, as uh, always, we have a great show for you tonight. We're going to be starting out with uh, another round of discussions on the Coach's Corner panel here in just a moment, and I've got everybody uh, waiting in the wings, and I'll introduce them here in just a minute. And then a little bit later on, my good friend, uh, Byron Casper, international PGA member, and of course, co-founder of the Billy Casper uh, schools, golf schools, uh, will be joining me here uh, on the second half of the show. But let me just remind everybody, of course, we are live uh, every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on the blogtalkradio.com network. And best way to find us is go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live or just simply type golf talk live uh, in the search key and that will bring you to the main page. Um, for some reason, if you can't join us live, not a problem. Just scroll down that page to the on-demand section. And, of course, all of the uh, previously aired shows will be there in their entirety in the recorded version, so you can listen to them when it's convenient for you to do so. Some other great ways to tune into the show as well, go to iTunes.com, Stitcher.com, TuneIn.com, and now TalkStreamLive.com or some of the other social media platforms that you can listen live to the program or uh, recorded version, whatever is, again, convenient for you. Some other uh, ways to communicate as well, you can also... Uh, call into the show anytime during the live broadcast Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central. The number to call in is area code 646-716-4667. If you want to talk to either myself or any of the coaches or any of my special guests, you're welcome to do so. Uh, you can also reach out to me uh, through my email, and my email is ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. So if you're somebody in the golf profession, as an example, and maybe you're interested in coming on to the show, uh, you're welcome to do so by reaching out to me through that email, and I'll check my schedule and uh, make arrangements to get you on. But as I mentioned, we've got a great discussion to start things off with the uh, Coach's Corner panel, so let me introduce everybody, and then I'll bring them on. Uh, first up, of course, is uh, Allison Kurt. Uh, she's a PGA Master Professional in Instruction and an LPJ Class A member, uh, one of 11 women to achieve the highest PGA credential earned by an instructor. Uh, she's also uh, has over 28 years of uh, golf competition background, and played on a full scholarship at FSU while earning degrees in psychology and uh, professional golf management. Also, uh, my good friend John Hughes, a PJ uh, Master Professional as well, and the president of the North Florida PJ section, and the uh, uh, recipient of the 2013 PJ uh, America Horton Smith Award, as well as a top 30 instructor with Golf Tips Magazine. Also, another good friend, Peter Gazarian. He's uh, both PGA and TPI teach professional with the Traconic Golf Club. He's also the head men's golf coach with the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, and he's also the founder of Northeast Golf Performance and a member of the Proponent Group. And rounding out the panel, of course, last but not least, is Bill Abrams. He's a PJ professional and owner, uh, director of instruction for Golf Solutions Academy at uh, Balmoral Woods in Crate, Illinois, and also the Golf Channel Academy with David Impastato at Heron Bay 
in Coral Springs, Florida. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Coach's Corner. Thanks for having Thanks. us, Ted. All right, appreciate it, everybody. Thanks for uh, for jumping in. All right, we're going to start off with kind of a, an interesting question here, and uh, very willingly, or, or maybe not too willingly, uh, Bill has decided to uh, get under the bus first with his first question. So, Bill, this is going to go to you first. Of course, everybody's going to answer this. Um, but um, let me just explain a little bit in, in a little bit more detail. I kind of gave the panel a sort of heads up uh, before we started. Um, Obviously, I know all of you have uh, very unique gifts and talents. Uh, you're all uh, wonderful certified golf professionals and coaches and, and so on and so forth. However, I want you to set that aside for a moment, if you will, all of your credentials, and just look at yourself uh, for this particular question as uh, obviously a golf instructor or coach. Uh, and if I was coming to you as a potential new student or, or uh, client, how would you sell yourself to me why would I want to come and either take lessons or get into a program with you what are some of the unique things that you're going to do for me um, and that's not to go against anybody else but I want you to sort of ingrain a little bit of what it is that you're going to do to help improve my game Bill you go first yeah, very good question, Ted. And, you know, I get this a lot. So here's uh, here's where I would go. You're a, a very new player. Let me ask you a couple questions here. How new are you to the game? Have you ever played? Have you ever practiced? I've played a little bit, um, but not a lot. Practiced a little bit. I might play a couple times a year and, uh, you know, maybe in uh, an event, a uh, corporate event, but uh, don't really play a lot. First thing I'm going to ask you, if I could improve one shot in your game that would encourage you to play much more golf, what would it be? And that's where I go with the student. I would, say, I would ask you that. Right, right. And obviously I would want to be able to make better contact or more consistent contact would be probably my answer to that. Go ahead. Okay, there's, a, there's my starting point. Now, Ted, we'll show you a way very simply – so you can be very consistent. One of the things that we do is for, we're going to work as a team to allow you to play as well as you want to. I want you to have the emotions of striking very, very good shots. And I want you to have emotions that you've never, ever had about golf before and see the ball fly the way you'd like it to and make you very happy with the game. You know, in my side of it, I'm going to work diligently with you and we're going to find a way, and the, and the very key focus is that we have to be on, so when you practice and play, you're going to be able to play this game. You know, everybody wants to, you want to play a little more consistently. We're going to work a lot on how you stand up, how you set up to the ball, and how you think to, to bring that consistency, because those are the two areas that we can do. If we can keep you focused, as opposed to having 47 thoughts in your mind, we're going to help you get to where you want to be and even exceed that. I like that great answer, um, Peter. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump to you next if you don't mind, um, and and let me just say we'll we'll sort of play with this theme that since Bill sort of started it off that you know obviously I'm fairly new to the game uh, and consistency is something I'm looking at. Um, how are you going to approach me as a new student um, in, in order to you know create a relationship? that we can 
you know, obviously foster for some period of time. Sure. First thing I'm going to ask you, Ted, is uh, why do you no, play that, golf? No, that was Peter. No, I'm John, sorry. That was for Peter. Sorry. Okay. John, John, go, 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 go. You go with it. You right, already John. started. All right. Go ahead, John. John, you go ahead, and then I'll go to John, and then I'll go to Peter. After you. Okay. Go ahead, John. Ted, why, why do you play golf? Sorry about that, Pete. Okay. <laughs> well, Ted, obviously, why do you, play golf? you know, I. You know, it's it's a sport that I'm interested in. I have fun. When I do go out, I just want to be better at it. You said an operative word there, fun. What's fun about golf? Uh, it's it's interesting and it's challenging. I always like, you know, in my business life, I like challenges. So, obviously, I want to, in whatever I do, I like to be challenged. If I'm not challenged, then I'm bored. And that's why I enjoy golf, and that's why it's fun to me, because it is challenging. So, uh, what can what is it that you're here? Obviously, you're not having too much fun, or you wouldn't be here with me. What is it that I can help you with that can make the game more fun for you? Well, uh, obviously, consistency. That's one of the areas that I struggle with. You know, I hit some good shots here and there, but there's not a lot of consistency with it. You know, sometimes it's it's a top shot. Sometimes it's a big old slice. And other times it's, you know, it's just all over the place. So consistency is what I'm looking for to, in order to be able to, uh, to maximize my game. Gotcha. And then, then from there I'm going to continue the, the interview process and finally end it with are you looking for a teacher? Are you looking for an instructor? Or are you looking for a coach? Okay. So Very what, good. What, would, what are you looking for, Ted? I think initially I would probably look for a, a teacher or instructor, and then obviously if I felt a comfort level um, that to continue the relationship, then obviously maybe into more of a coaching model would be something that I would be interested in. So that would be probably my, my answer. Gotcha. So you're going to get a coach because I believe that's the top of the line of those three. And and what we're going to do has a lot to do with you both on and off the golf course. Uh, you have access to me when you're off the golf course because that's part of this. I'm, I'm part of your team, and there's going to be times when I'm not around when you need me and so forth so on. And that that's pretty much the differentiation that I try to do is, is A, fun, find out exactly what they're having fun at or what they're not having fun at, why they're there and then have them understand we're establishing the relationship right then and there, and this is the expectation I'm giving you out of me. Well done. Well said. Um, Peter, now it's your turn, and then Allison. Yes, I'm Ted. Ted, if you're a, you know, it sounds like you're a recreational player. You're playing, you know, corporate events. You're playing infrequently, um, you know, I would in, I want to invite you to come play a few holes with me, um, and that way we can spend some time together. You can play some holes. We can talk about everything. We can take a look at your game, and we can really make a we can prioritize you know parts of your game, or just take a look at the whole the whole thing in the real environment, and then we can prioritize um, what item is going to make the biggest impact first. And then we can, you know, make a plan from there. That would be 
you know, that's what I want to do for you is, is be out on the golf course with you, really the environment we play. Um, and then we can make a plan. And if you want to be part of a, a coaching program with me, um, I'm happy to have you. Perfect. Well said. And certainly last but not least, Allison, uh, I've come to you as a new student or potential new client. Um, how would you approach me, if you would, on uh, or invite me, if you would, to become a better player? Um, why would I want to connect with you, per se, uh, in this endeavor? I think first off, I would ask how you came across me. What attracted you to reach out to me, to contact me? Um, most students at some point have done at least a little bit of research about a particular instructor, mm -hmm. whether it's cost-based or accolade-based or location-based or facility-based. So I would flip the question around and kind of answer, um, answer that question with, well, what attracted you to um, come talk to me about your game? And through the interview process, which I usually do pretty in-depth with all potential students to see if we're a good fit, um, I would just kind of articulate about how you are unique as a golfer and will have different unique needs, which definitely matches up to my unique background in where I come from for teaching. Um, bridging the worlds of psychology and golf performance together allows me to provide more of a holistic approach to coaching and teaching rather than just focusing on swing mechanics. And ultimately that's kind of like the best package to help you perform better on the golf course. Um, in terms of my mode in working with you as a student, I really take a student centered approach. And what that means is based on what your needs are in a particular day, based on what your short-term goals are and your long-term goals are, you and I will then customize a plan that fits your body, that fits your time constraints, and um, fits your pocketbook in order to create the best opportunity for you to be the best version of the golfer that you desire to be. So what's kind of interesting about my approach is that it's not really on my terms or how I want to teach. It's all customized to you, your learning style, your needs, your time frame, what your body can do, your equipment, certainly making recommendations along the way with my expertise and my wisdom, um, but ultimately finding your best path to better your golf game. And that would be my approach to you and just to kind of let it sink in and, and see if that, um, that method is attractive to you. Very well said. Thank you, Allison. And, and sold, by the way. Um, that was a great answer. Um, the, the re you were all, all, all of you had great answers. Uh, the, the reason why I asked this question, guys, is, is this. I've, I've talked to a number of different uh, individuals who have taken lessons and, and so on and so forth. And one of the interesting things that was brought to my attention a little while ago was, uh, and again, the reason why I didn't want you to necessarily um, talk about credentials and things like that was certainly not to take away from, because you, you've all worked very hard for where you're at. But to be truthful, most golfers out there, other than certain things, you know, PGA, LPGA, uh, you know, coach, that type of thing, those types of titles really don't understand a lot of the credentials that, that we all may have because they're not in the industry. Um, so to them, that's not really important. And again, I'm not trying to take away from anybody's uh, skill level, but I wanted to see 
without using that, how everybody would sort of put together a, a plan, if you will, in getting me to um, enjoy the game, to participate more, and to want to participate more, and what specifically might you zero in to meet the needs that I may have. Um, and I think sometimes as golf professionals, when we're out there in, in you know, social media land and so on and so forth, people just want the very basic and understanding of what it is, um, as you all pointed out, here's what I'm going to do for you. It's not what I can do or what I'm capable of doing or how much necessarily experience I have because obviously if I've, <clears throat> excuse me, as, as Allison and all of you have suggested, if I'm going to research a little bit um, as to who you are, I'm going to get an idea of essentially what you've done and where you've been and, and where you've worked uh, before I contact you or it may be through a referral of a friend. So I've already had some sort of insight as to who you all are. But now I want to decide, okay, who's going to be the best fit for me? And you guys all came from different approaches and different ways, but had a lot of similarities as well. And that's a good thing. Um, I think that, you know, having consistency in an industry, um, but at the same time, having the flexibility of being unique uh, is also an added bonus as well. So well done, guys. I know it's not always easy to... To jump on a question like that um, without uh, doing certain things and having a lot of heads up. So you guys did a great job. Thank you for that. All right, I want to um, I want to ask you each a question, sort of a follow up to this. And um, since we started with with Bill, we're going to go to uh, John and then Peter, Allison, and then Bill. You're going to go last. So John, uh, this question for you is: In your opinion, and this is strictly your own opinion, doesn't necessarily have to fit with the industry model. What is the most important factor, do you think, in being a good teacher or instructor or coach? You can put whatever label you want. Uh, I would sum it up in a phrase. The flexibility okay. to listen and adapt to the student's needs that's in front of you right then and there. Uh, it, it's really quite that simple. Uh if you can't bend and flex and as Allison very succinctly said, be there for the students needs, uh, you're never going to figure that out. If you can't listen to figure that out, it just, it won't work. You, you won't be very successful at this for very long. Right. Well said. Um, Peter, your, your thoughts, do you concur with that or do you have some other thoughts as well? That was for Peter. Peter, did you get that? Sorry, John. You really have to be empathetic and have the ability to put yourself in the position of every player that you come across and be able to not to listen like John said, but you have to also be appreciative of um, their experiences, their everything that encapsulates them, just as uh, Allison said, I completely agree with her in the sense of being player-based and player-centered um, and making it about them. It really is all about the player and um, the, the instructor or coach's level of 
empathy for that player's position and where they would like to go is, is really, I think, the most important thing. Right. Well said. Um, Allison, what do you think? Um, what's, in your opinion, do you think is the most important factor uh, in being a good teacher or coach? Uh, what, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think the, the flexibility um, answer and being able to move with the student where they go is um, top notch. But to come up with kind of a, a new answer to add on to that, I would think it's really hearing and listening to the student, but not just to the words that they're saying, interpreting the meaning behind their words. So a student can talk to you about disappointment, but you might start to pick up from them um, some other pieces of their life that are really influencing their performance. And so a really good listener for a student will actually reframe the comments that they're making. They will um, sort of summarize what they've heard, and that allows the student to feel heard and to feel understood. And a lot of times students just really want to be heard. They just want to know that the instructor has understood what they've told them, and, again, they can empathize with what's been told to them. So I think when we use our deeper listening skills, we create a much stronger bond and relationship with our student, which certainly helps the learning process. Wow. Very well said. Um, Bill, um, I think you probably concur with that. Is there anything uh, that you want to add uh, in, in making um, an impact as a teacher? What, what makes a, a good teacher, do you think? Yeah, I, I agree across the board, and especially, Allison, very good job uh, bringing that forward. I will add one thing to it. The hearing is one thing, but the listening, as you say, you've got to get to their heartstrings. And I think the thing that I would add on top of that is I'm going to define to you how it works, and it works within your brain. I'll, I'm going to go ahead. You know, we're going to we'll talk with players. You have to be able to empathize. You have to understand what they do for a living. You have to understand things to give analogies. Because when we can make it common ground for a player, they're going to they're gonna rise and they're going to play way better than they ever thought they could. But I really feel that the definition is one thing, especially this day and age, with Internet and everything else, we don't do a good enough job sometimes defining what it is. When somebody says straight back, there could be 800 different definitions of that. And that's where the player gets confused, mm -hmm. and we want to avoid that confusion. Right, right, I agree. Right. Um, P Peter, I'm going to start with you on this one, and then we're going to go straight down. Uh, Peter, Allison, uh, Bill, and then, and then John. Um, I recently, in the last uh, couple of weeks on Coach's Corner, uh, I've talked about uh, an industry report that was put out uh, by the National Golf Foundation, and, and again, uh, these are, are sort of general stats, but one of them kind of stuck out that I, I think is very interesting, uh, and I would like to, to get all of your feedback as well. Uh, approximately, uh, approximately uh, Peter, I'm going to start with you. Approximately 50% of all golf, golfers to date, uh, and this is based on a, 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 a report that came out this year, but based on statistics from 2017, and this is only in the United States, so of approximately uh, 23 to 25 million golfers. Uh, of those golfers, approximately 50% of those 
still struggle to break 100. What would you do, Peter, uh, to help lower that statistic? That's a fairly broad question, but <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I think it starts just from what we're what we're doing and what I do on a daily basis is just helping people understand, you know, the strengths in their game. The, there's a lot of things that you can do with people that I'm sure Allison will concur with this that have to do with much more of the emotional and mental side and decision-making side of playing the game of golf that are going to move the needle on their score um, more than actually touching technique or making an any, any kind of change. Um, you know, for me, I look at the most unintrusive way that I can help either change their scoring habits, their decision-making habits, or a very inintrusive way to, just isolate why they already hit good shots and then help them reinforce that and into the swing. Cause there's, you know, if you have a person that's playing a regular game of golf that calls himself a golfer, they hit good shots already. And if, right. if you can right. help them understand why that's already happening and then they're standing up there with yep. that plan on a consistent basis, then you have, you're giving them an opportunity to stop trying multiple things during a course of a round of golf. And then on the other side of the equation, if they understand why, what they're doing or why the, the missed shot is happening and really make it very singular, make their focus and put their focus in the most important place and have it be as singular as possible. Then you can start moving the needle on score. And, you know, you talk again, go back to decision-making the mental side, mm-hmm. and then if you need to, you can touch technique. It, it can move the needle so far. I see it in my college players all the time. We talk primarily about decision-making, um, and, and, and that, that can really move the needle quickly as far as scoring goes. Yeah, uh, Allison, Peter brings up a, a very interesting point. You know, most of the golfers that play with any sort of regularity, and, and one of the other numbers I want to throw into this stat um, is of the sort of average golfers that are out there, um, certainly not everybody, but they're playing an average of about 19 rounds per year, uh, depending on where they are and, and what groups they're in and that. But essentially, that's sort of the industry average. So most people that are playing with, with that sort of frequency, they may not be the best ball strikers, but they have some, uh, some skill level. Um, what do you see as a way of moving that needle as, as Peter suggests um, and, and getting some of these golfers to, to, um, you know, start breaking that hundred barrier. Is it, is it a mental thing? Do you think for a lot of them, is it more the physical side of the game or is it a combination of both or is it something different? Well, ultimately it comes down to how many times they hit the golf ball. So if we can figure out a way, whether that's mental or whether that's physical to hit the golf ball, less times than a hundred we're getting them to break uh break that barrier and get into the 90s and i think probably the quickest way for the average golfer to break that threshold is through the short game and we hear that a lot but i don't know if amateur golfers really understand what that means because when i interview my students and they come for a driver lesson and let's say there are 20 handicaps and they really want to hit the driver and they really want to hit the driver straight and far 
they talk about that being make or break for their game. So if they're hitting the fairway, then the rest of the game is easy. But upon investigation, when we talk about when you're 20 or 30 yards away from the hole, how many chips or how many pitches plus how many putts are starting to add up to the score, it's more than what we think um, as golf professionals as being um, having a proficient or a great short game. It could be an additional four to five shots. So if someone really wants to lower their score, put away the driver, put away all the swing mechanics, and learn how to putt and chip. And there's a lot of different ways to putt and chip effectively. It doesn't have to be uh, what you see on TV. It doesn't have to be textbook. It's the best way to get the golf ball in the hole faster than anybody else. And if an individual, the average golfer, can break less than two putts per hole, we're going to start shaving off shots. If we can just make one chip per hole, we can start shaving off shots. So I would, I would prefer to start more small and then build a golfer back up into the full swing as that approach to uh, lower their scores. Hmm. Very, very interesting analysis and well said. Um, Bill, I want to inject one other uh, final thing in here uh, just to uh, maybe add to your answer a little bit. Um, you know, we've obviously in both of uh, – Peters and, and Allison's, you know, we've, we've heard about, you know, the mental side and, uh, and also maybe uh, some modification even to the physical side a little bit. Um, but is also the numbers that we're playing with in golf, uh, should that change in order to give a different perspective? And let me explain what I'm talking about. Um, in a given day, we, we think of par as par 72, on most golf courses, obviously there's some uh, variations. You might find one that's 71 and some that's 73 and so on and so forth. But generally par is 72. But that is a pro par. That is what the best players use as their measuring stick. Would it be beneficial to some of our really high handicappers, those that are struggling to break 100, if we change that? And I'm not talking about an industry, but from a mental standpoint, if bogey golf or 90 becomes the new par for them and the reason why I ask that question is that gives on every hole one extra stroke for them to work with and if they're able to make par the new par they've already broken 100 without really having to modify their game what do you think of that theory and what do you have to add um, with respect to changing that needle I, um, I mention that with customers and players all the time Ted um, you know, we, we talk about what's par, what's this, and, and players can get their arms around things a lot of times. I have a player that's trying to break 100. Mention it just similar to what you did. If you make six on every hole on, on 18 holes, that's 108. If you make five on every yep. hole, you got 90. What's halfway in between them? 99 is, is right. five and a half a hole. So we start to be able to give them things that they can get their arms around. So often, you know, no matter what level player, if it's a player that's trying to break 70 or 80 or, or whatever, we need to be able to find that constant that's going to be very, very simple for them. And, you know, going back to the rest of the conversation as well, we always worry about what went wrong. And I have players always that time going back on a little bit of what Allison and Pete were saying well, let's focus on what makes it right. Instead of sitting there three holes later, you know, you made a seven on that hole, but you can make fours on these next two. So guess what? 
we're right back on schedule. We're one shot ahead of, or we're one shot above where we need to be. So, you know, I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the things it goes into the negative mindset. Plus the, you know, it just, you know, you can't get your arms around what you're trying to do. Sometimes if we can take it in smaller bites, like you're saying, if we can average five a hole, that's 90. And, you know, we start to get into that type of mindset. Now, all of a sudden, players start to score. And going back with Allison, you know, I have players all the time that come to say, oh, I chip great and I, I putt great. I said, well, how many putts do you average for 18 holes? Why two putt everything and have an occasional one putt? I said, we're not talking a good mm-hmm. putter until we get to 30. And, you know, it's, it's everybody's perception of things, and we have to kind of change the, uh, the sliding scale a little bit, if that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yep. Perfect sense. Uh, great answer. Um, John, is it a little bit of all of the above? Um, you know, obviously the, the mental side of the game and getting inside the, you know, the player's head a little bit and finding out what it is that they're maybe having some anxieties about, what's making them struggle a little bit out in the golf course. Is it changing some of the dynamics in their golf swing to, to help them to, to groove a better swing? Uh, or is it to add uh, one more component, as I suggested, to the mental side, uh, by changing uh, par for them, making par a different number to help alleviate some of that anxiety? Because uh, I can tell you there's a lot of players out there, even players that have played for any length of time. Uh, as we get older, obviously, our, our bodies change, and, and uh, unfortunately, our numbers tend to go up. Um, but is that an option as well to help in the process? What are your thoughts? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna start by saying that all three of my panelists are just brilliant at what they do, and their answers are absolutely on the mark. But before we we as great golf coaches can help anybody with what was said, and prioritize it and be customer centric, that's really the the key here. We have to break down the barriers to get people out to do it more often. I take a little bit of question to NGF numbers that they play 19 times in a year. That equates to 2.73 rounds a month with the distractions, with the life priorities, with the other things that go on. And we're talking about a male, not a female, not being able to break a hundred. I don't, I don't necessarily see that a lot other than the absolute beginner. A beginner is not someone who plays 19 times. So I take a little bit of, sure. of uh, hey, I'm, I'm not sure about those numbers. But what it does say is, yep. as Allison hinted at, the more times you strike it, the better you're going to get at it. So we have got to create avenues, opportunities. And I don't mean for this to sound like an industry rant because of my political position. I actually firmly, passionately believe this. We've got to break down some barriers to get people out there more often so they can understand that par doesn't apply to you, and this does apply to you, and here's why. And, oh, oh, by the way, here's how the math adds up, and let's concentrate from the hole backwards, not from the lustful driver down. And let's go out on the golf course and let's teach you how to use decision-making skills that you do in daily life and applying the golf and or vice versa. Let's find a way that you make a better decision in golf. It may apply in life. And when you start doing those things, but most importantly have people feel a lot more warmed and invited 
to be there to hit a bucket of balls or to play four holes. We don't have to start them out at 18. We just got to break down the barriers to get them there. So those three strategies mentioned by Bill Allison and Peter can now take effect. They're, they're, they're tried and true. There's science behind it all. But we've got to get them out there so the repetitions can become multiple, not singular. Yeah. And just to, uh, well said, John, uh, just to go back a little bit about the stats, I think when they're talking an average, obviously they're taking a, an industry average. Um, obviously there's a lot of players that are out there that may be only playing, you know, a couple times a year. And there's other players that are probably paying, you know, maybe playing uh, several times a week. So I'm sure that that adds to, to bumping that number up a little bit. Um, Allison, I want to, I want to throw this, even though I know this is kind of out of order, uh, uh, from what I've been trying to do here tonight, I want to ask you this question first, and then we will go to uh, Bill, Peter, and then John. Um, so here's the question, Allison, uh, for you. Becoming an elite player takes a lot of what? Self-discipline. Okay. So to expand on that... I think that yes. um, you could say it would take time, it would take hard work, you know, all those cliches, but I think it really takes self-discipline. Um, and self-discipline is really all-encompassing. It's um, self-discipline of focus. It's monitoring your practice environment. It's monitoring your nutrition, your health, monitoring how you practice. Um, everything in order to become an elite player really needs to be mapped out, precise, and specific. That's how people get really good at it. And um, in order to follow suit with those plans, I think an individual needs to have a lot of self-discipline, the ability to um, ignore distractions, the ability to make choices Mm -hmm. that uh, maybe they don't feel like practicing that particular day, so they don't. Well, an elite player will go and practice, and they'll make the best use out of it, even when they feel like they don't. And that's working through that uncomfortableness. So I think in order to become an elite player, it really comes down to self-discipline. Right, right. Well said. Um, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, did I say Peter next? Or Bill? I think it's me, Bill. Yeah. Okay, Bill. All right, I'm sorry. Not keeping, uh, I'm, not Bill? Keeping, I'm, not, I'm not keeping the scorecard, Ted, so don't worry. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> okay, so a question to you. Uh, becoming an elite player takes a lot of what? What, in your opinion, what do you think it, it does to take an elite, uh, to become an elite player? I, uh, you know, going back a few years, I, the late Tony Holguin, who was a very good friend of mine and a bit of a mentor, he won the 54 Texas Open and 48-49 uh, Mexican Open. He was a wonderful player. He served on the board here in Illinois for 12 years, won all our majors here. And he was like an under-the-radar kind of guy. And I asked him that question one time. He, says, he said to me, Billy, it's right in your heart. And that goes back to, to a bit of what Allison said, you know, the discipline. It's in the heart and the confidence is what makes that elite player. And if, if they're not putting in the time that they need to in the gym, they're not eating correctly, they're not hydrating correctly, they're not practicing enough or practicing the correct things, that confidence and the heart is always going to have a question. And I think, you know, that's maybe a little different way of saying what Allison said. But, you know, I'm taking that from a guy that uh, won his first tour event in 48. And, um, you know, he went toe-to-toe with Sam Sneed, 64-66. 
And, you know, that's some days ago, but he was a pretty darn good player. And uh, first time he got invited to the Masters, he couldn't uh, go because he was an assistant at Pelham Country Club, and the head pro wouldn't let him go. So the heart, I'll take Tony's word for it. The heart, the heart and the, uh, yeah, the heart and the confidence, which goes right back in to what Allison's saying, the discipline. I think it all goes hand in hand. Yeah, that's uh... – Wow, that would be a tough, uh, a tough thing to hear that you couldn't go and compete in the Masters from your boss. I think I'd be having some words that I can't air on on uh, live uh, radio. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a tough break there. But no, well, well said. Um, I agree with you 100%. Um, Peter, you, you obviously, uh, and John, I think I was going to go to you, but I'm going to go to Peter this time uh, first. Um, Peter, you have the opportunity to work with a lot of uh, young guns, if you will, that are maybe having their sights set on uh, one day becoming, uh, you know, a top player. So you have the uh, unique ability to help mold them into that position right now. So what do you think, and, and use maybe some of your discussions that you have with, uh, with some of the, uh, the players that you're working with uh, at, at the collegiate level, um, what d- discussions do you have with them for those that maybe are interested in one day becoming uh, the next elite player? Um, I, I would say some of the college players are, you know, you, you definitely have different conversations with them player to player, but, uh, you know, and I think in, in my broad, um, look at being really an elite player at the highest level, I, I feel as though you have to be, have mental toughness. You have to, you have to, at some point, I think if you look back across, I mean, I think this past year is a little bit of a microcosm of history. The people who rise to be successful have overcome some level of adversity um, mm-hmm. through their lives or something, and they've they've grown to realize that they have that level of self-awareness and that self-confidence that they can overcome whatever is coming um, because, you know, I think the round of golf is an extremely emotional experience. And you have to overcome uh, a lot of uh, situations, a lot of emotions, a lot, uh, quite a few moments of self-doubt. Um, and in order to to do that, you have to have a, a level of toughness that only comes from having overcome um, whatever that you've had to overcome in your life. And uh, I think that you can find that in any avenue of uh, any pursuit, really, the, the, I, in my opinion, some of the most successful people have overcome quite a bit and have become exceedingly mental, mentally tough and self-aware because of it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great answer. Um, John, I'm, I'm going to get you to wrap up that question. Uh, becoming an elite player takes what? Let's not leave Allison out. Um, the, the no, Allison's already answered Peter. Oh, that's right. That's right. My fault. I apologize. I wasn't sleeping. Uh, what I, the way I'd wrap it up is uh, there was a story told to me by Michael Jordan. Um, I was an acquaintance of him a long time ago, and I, I asked him what was the difference between playing for coach at the University of North Carolina versus playing in the pros after his rookie league, rookie season. And he basically said, you know, in high school, the physical, everybody is just a, such a wide dispersion, a dispersion of physical prowess that, you know, the, the best physical people get to college. When you're in college, that's 
physicalness gets narrowed a bit and the mental does come out. And by the time you reach the pros, physically everybody's within a half a percent of each other. It's the people who can do it day in, day out from a mental toughness standpoint of view that actually get it done. And he told me at that point that he had a lot to work on, that a Larry Bird, a Magic Johnson, those people of that era just had it all over him because they never took a playoff. And that was something he had to learn. Uh, Going with that, and I want to say this is a paraphrase of a Richard Branson quote, that what it takes to be a lead at anything is the passion to understand that you're never making a sacrifice, the commitment to understand that there's never a distraction, and the understanding that there's never a ceiling. And if if those three things fall in line, not only is the mental toughness there, the the ability, the path has been cleared for you to reach whatever potential lies ahead of you. It's literally a matter of committing to it, being totally passionate when the passion's gone, and then realizing the competitor next to you doesn't see you at the top or anyone else other than themselves, and they're not satisfied with being at the top. They're trying to reach the next level. And if, if those things fall into place, you can overcome a lot. You can overcome a lot of maybe physical deficiency or uh, fitness deficiency or whatever the case may be. There, there's documented proof. Whoever knew that Tom Kite would have been the all-time leading money winner until Tiger came along? Uh, he's, hmm. he's, he was legally blind. Uh, so, but he had those three things. He had the commitment. He had the passion. He had the understanding. It was just never enough to rest on your laurels. And that's what I tell every player that seeks that. It, you've got to have those things. It's okay if you don't, but that's also going to mean that maybe your goals aren't as realistic as you believe them to be. Mm. Well said. Uh, very interesting analogy. Um, going quickly, I, I had another question that was different than this, and I was going to pose it to all three of you, but uh, we're not going to have enough time to do that. So I want to add on to what we just talked about uh, and I'm just going to go through the pecking order again. Uh, Allison, I'm going to go back to you. Um, you know, obviously we heard some great answers as far as becoming an elite player. Um, and it does take discipline. It does take that commitment and, and certainly mental toughness. Um, but very quickly, if you can, what happens as an elite player when mentally you break down either as a result of your physical game uh, or just uh, emotional pressures that may creep in from other outside elements. How do you regain yourself and your composure? You've obviously got the skill level to get where you've gotten, um, but sometimes mentally, and we've seen this time and time again over uh, many decades on the PGA and I'm sure even on the LPGA tour where a player has just sort of broken down uh, and, and had to sort of refine themselves. Um, what do you suggest for a player like that? How do you, how do you handle that? I think if you come up with sort of a SWOT analysis of your game, looking at, you know, the strengths, the weaknesses, where are some opportunities to improve, um, some maybe threats to the mental game, you can really kind of come up with a clear plan uh, of where an individual is breaking down when it comes to emotional regulation, concentration, visualization, So I really think that a player needs to take a really good assessment of themselves, not necessarily the mechanical side, 
but the mental side, where are they starting to see themselves break down? Is it um, throughout the course of tournaments? Is it on the final three holes? Is it starting off a tournament? Once you have a better idea of the areas that the mental game is starting to weaken, then you can either find like a sports psychologist or um, a, a coach who can help mentally work on those performances could be building up confidence. Um, it could be using like, let's say focus band and improving one's concentration over shots. So to answer that question, I think an individual needs to have a self-assessment to find out where the areas are. And that really takes a great level of self-awareness. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, great, great answer. Uh, Bill, very quickly, um, your thoughts on that. Um, obviously it hap- happens to elite players sometimes that, you know, the, the chair comes out from underneath, if you will, or the stool comes out. Um, what do we do to help fix it? Well, one of the things going on Allison's thought there is I go to, back to routine. And I do a very good, especially with the elite players, we're timing our routine. And I'll find something will change. If they take two looks at the target and then fire, they may be taking one or they may be taking three. More likely they're taking more. The timing starts to get out of, out of whack. Then the physical starts to get out of whack. It's got to be a holistic thing. As she said, everything moves together. And if we get one little, one little piece of the puzzle gets thrown out, taking an extra rehearsal swing or taking your rehearsal swing without a purpose can create some of, these, some of these issues. Now, a physical issue may have created that, but we can also erase it by allowing you to utilize your, um, your routine better. Mm-hmm. Right, right. No, you, you, I agree with that as well. Um, we've seen that time and time again. A lot of times if you watch uh, players on Sunday, uh, especially when they've been in the lead, um, suddenly their game will literally, I hate to use this term, but go south, and you'll kind of think to yourself, what's going on here? What's happening? A lot of times you'll see they'll start to fall out of their normal routine and are just for some reason not able to get back into it in the round. Uh, we've seen that time and time again over, over the years. Um, Peter, very quickly, uh, any uh, additional thoughts or, or how do you uh, approach this uh, working with a lot of college uh, players as well? I'm sure you've seen this where they'll be doing well and then all of a sudden uh, things are not so good. What, what do you do to handle that? That was for Peter. Peter, did you? Sorry, Ted. We just spent a lot of time on the golf course to provide some context as to why. Um, It's definitely a different discussion for every player. Um, And, you know, it's it's definitely um, very player-centered, whether it's the college coaching or my professional coaching. And, um we just make sure we're having an open discussion as to why certain things are happening. It's, and it really is an old, that's the one thing I always believe is that it has to be an open discussion. It has to be two way. It really can't be just the player has to feel really comfortable sharing um, and really knowing that you're, you're listening and, and giving them just your thoughts and how you can help best. That's, it doesn't matter whether it's, any level golfer. Yeah, uh, you're, you're exactly right. You know, a lot of times I think, guys, that um, you start to play into vulnerability with, with uh, individuals. Uh, even something uh, like golf, you'd be surprised when, when the 
wheels fall off the bus, so to speak, you'd be surprised at how uncomfortable uh, a player can get talking about certain things, unless it's an obvious thing like a physical injury that's maybe causing the problem. But sometimes if there's outside emotions that are affecting, it can be very difficult. And I go back to what Allison said about, you know, maybe seeking out a professional uh, you know, uh, psychologist or somebody that's trained specifically in dealing with some of that. And obviously, Allison, I know you are. Um, um, sometimes that's that's necessary to, to get it at the root of what the cause may be. Uh, John, uh, just some final thoughts as well on uh, when the when the uh, chair or the wheels fall off the bus uh, for some of our better players. Or it doesn't necessarily have to be an elite player, but uh, uh, you know, how do you, how do you handle that? Um, I, all the above for the other three and the other thing I'd throw out, and I think probably the other three do this as well as benchmarking that when that good player or that not so good player has reached a level where we know things are going right and they stay consistent for a while that we need to be benchmarked, not only from a video and three dimensional way, but also from, uh, from all angles, mental, uh, fitness, nutrition, what are those things that are part of that routine that are not necessarily clicking? It's just part of the routine while you're clicking. And that's the new benchmark. And, and that's the standard that you, you significantly or one by one eliminate the variables that could be the potential for the wheels falling off. Uh, when you've got that benchmark, when you've got that standard, it's a lot easier and very and much less time consuming to try to diagnose why those wheels have fallen off and get to the root cause and get and at least get back on the horse and go. Uh, it could the benchmark could change. However, when you've got that standard to base yourself off of, it's a lot easier to work from there versus trying to shoot at straws. Yep. Yep. You're you're. Uh... As you said, all of the above. Great answers, guys. Um, well, John, Bill, Allison, and Peter, thank you very much. for. A very, it's been a very interesting discussion on, on the Coach's Corner tonight. I wanted to take a little bit different approach uh, to start things off, and um, it, it was very interesting to hear uh, all of your your viewpoints on, on the questions tonight, uh, certainly some, some crossover and some similarities, but some also – some different uh, injections as well. Um, so thank you guys for doing that. Very quickly, um, we'll start uh, top to bottom. Peter, um, how can the folks, if they want to reach out, the best way to, to do so? And then we'll go Allison, Bill, and John. Yeah, Ted, th- uh, thanks for having me on again. Uh, great to spend time with you and, and everybody else in the panel. Thank you. I agree with John. I think everybody's words are extremely uh, just right on, uh, spot on, very intelligent, very well thought out. And uh, anybody would be smart to seek out uh, any of you. Um, people can reach me at uh, my website is uh, gogolfcoach.com. Um, I use Instagram most often, so if you'd like to find me, I'm uh, at uh, dailygolf.coach. And um, if there's any questions, please reach out. Um, I have multiple ways on my website to get in touch with me. Uh, but again, thanks, Ted. Thanks, thanks Always a pleasure, Peter. Thank you, uh, Allison. Uh, for those that want to reach out to you and and uh, and uh, connect, how can they do that? 
Yes, they can uh, just look up Allison Kurt Golf. That will bring you to my website. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And then if you're curious about any sort of mental approaches to the game or looking to improve your mental game, you can head over to Kurt Performance Therapy, and that's a different website that um, deals with the mental side of golf. So AllisonKurtGolf.com and KurtPerformanceTherapy.com. Perfect. Very good. Um, Mr. Abrams, how about yourself? How can we reach you? Yeah, simplest way is BillAbramsGolf.com. Uh, all my contact information is there. And I want to add one last thing. I will be leaving my uh, Chicago area here in about a month and uh, available the 1st of November at a new location at Grand Palms Resort outside of Fort Lauderdale this year. So just simply BillAbramsGolf.com. You can find me there and uh, you'll have my Facebook, Twitter, and everything on YouTube is all there. So Perfect. Well, thank you as always, Bill. I appreciate it. And last but not least, John, uh, how can the folks reach out to you? Sure. Bill, Allison, Peter, once again, thanks for being part of the panel. Always an honor to be with you guys. And, Ted, thank you very much again. Always a pleasure. Uh, people can reach me at John Hughes Golf. Everything that I do is under that moniker, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, my webpage. Uh, and every second Tuesday when I'm on with Ted at 8 o'clock, I normally post my video tip of the month, so be looking for that in about three minutes if you're listening. Perfect. Well, guys, again, thank you very much. I know it's not always easy after a hard, long day to uh, to give of your time, so I appreciate it very, very much, as does the audience that tunes in each and every week. Um, so thank you, guys, and I look forward to you uh, joining me next time on the Coach's Corner panel. God bless to all of you, and uh, be safe in your travels this week and pray for those that uh, are in the uh, uh, wake of this uh, oncoming storm. So thanks guys, everybody. Thank you. Absolutely. Ted, thanks so much for hosting. All right. Appreciate it guys. Thank you. All right. That was uh, my very special guests on the coaches corner panel, uh, John Hughes, Peter Egazarian, Bill Abrams, and of course, Allison Kurt uh, joining us this evening. Um, I'm going to be joined here in just a moment by my uh, very good friend and special guest, uh, Byron Casper. Of course, uh, Byron is a professional golfer and member of the International PGA, as well as the co-founder uh, of his uh, father's uh, golf schools, Billy Casper Golf Schools. Uh, um, and uh, obviously, uh, Byron is uh, son of, of the legendary Billy Casper. And he's going to be joining me here in just a minute. But let me just remind everybody, of course, uh, once again, uh, obviously, if you're tuning in, you've figured it out, but let me just remind everybody the best ways to tune into the program. Uh, uh, each and every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central, uh, we are live on the blogtalkradio.com network, and you just simply go to blogtalkradio.com slash golftalklive uh, or simply type golftalklive up in the search key, <clears throat> pardon me, and that will take you there. Uh, for some reason, if you can't join us live, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, you can just simply scroll down on that link to the on-demand section and find all of the previously aired shows, including tonight's. We'll be there in a little bit uh, after the broadcast completes. Uh, you'll find the recorded version there. So for some reason, if you've missed uh, a recent episode or maybe you want to go and visit uh, one of the previous uh, year's uh, episodes, uh, you can find them all there uh, in descending order from the most current, again being tonight's, uh, all the way to the oldest uh, in the on-demand section. Some other great ways to listen and tune into the program is go to iTunes.com, Stitcher.com, TuneIn.com, 
and of course uh, talkstreamlive.com is a new social media platform that you can uh, listen to the show. Also, don't forget to join Tuesday mornings uh, uh, also on the same networks, uh, but the Women of Golf show where my good friend and co-host LPJ professional and Legends Tour player Cindy Miller and I speak with some of the great up-and-comers on the Symmetra Tour uh, each and every week, as well as uh, some interesting guests to add their uh, insightfulness into the program. So Tuesday mornings from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern, you can find myself and my good friend Cindy Miller on the Women of Golf show on the blogtalkradio.com network, or Thursday evenings from 6 to 8 p.m. Central, uh, where I go it alone here on Golf Talk Live. So thanks, everybody, for for tuning in. All right, as I mentioned, uh, my good friend, uh, Mr. Byron Casper is going to be joining me here, and I see that he's ready, so I'm going to bring him on. Uh, as I mentioned, he is a, a great golf professional and a member of the International PGA since uh, 1997, and of course, co-founder of Billy Casper Golf Schools. And of course, Billy Casper is uh, his father, and unfortunately, he's not with us anymore. But uh, uh, we're going to share some some interesting stories tonight. We're going to have a little. Uh, interesting discussion, as as Byron and I always uh, tend to do. So let me welcome my good friend, Mr. Byron Casper. Good evening, Byron. Welcome. Thank you, Ted. How you doing? Everything going great with uh, with you in the radio world? <laughs> I'm doing well, my friend. How are you? Uh, I think I think you've broken the record now, Byron, uh, for consecutive. Um, uh, appearances on my show. I think this is number four this year, if I'm not mistaken. You know what? I think you're. I uh, think you're correct, and um, I, I always look forward to coming on and having a good chat with you, and and catching up on uh, on what's going on in the golf world, both in mine and yours, as well as uh, the golf world in general. It's an exciting time in golf uh, at this time of the year, with the Ryder Cup coming up, and um, as you know, I have a huge interest in that. Yep. For, for sure. Um, well, let's do that. Let's catch up a little bit. Um, so let's do a quick catch up. And then uh, I've got some questions here that um, I want to sort of open up a dialogue and discussion with you about some specific things that I, I think uh, we'll both find of interest. Um, so tell me what's uh, what's going on in your world. Uh, any new developments? Uh, I noticed here recently, uh, for those of you that follow Byron, uh, you've been sporting a sling. Uh, what, what's all that about? You know, I, um, I I broke my shoulder um, in four spots in 2012 and had to have uh, pretty major surgery uh, where they took out a quarter inch of my collarbone uh, right where it meets the clavicle. And um, recently I got a new condo, um, and uh, sure enough, as I was moving a dresser, uh, one of the uh, movers uh, let it slip and it landed right in that crevice on top of my uh, uh, my collarbone and rotator cuff and uh, pretty much refractured it and so I um, I haven't been playing golf for uh, four weeks now I have to give it another four mm-hmm. weeks before I can go out and play um, and I'm wearing the sling um, right now I'm just about ready to actually take it off and start putting and doing some short game uh, drills. Um, uh, I had to talk my doctor into allowing me to do, to even do that. Um, And um, you know, you know what it's like when you're used to doing something, Um, you know, let's just put it this way. I have gotten far too good at Tiger Woods uh, Xbox golf. um, And (laughs) I would much rather be on the golf course myself. So, um, 
so yeah, so it's nothing major. Um, definitely getting back to golf, um, but it has been a uh, a very painful time. And I know any of the listeners out there that have had any joint injuries with elbows or knees or shoulders um, certainly would agree with me on the fact that it is really uh, it's really constricting uh, when you uh, injure a part of your body that gets used on a daily basis. Yeah, it's well, um, I uh, I can't say with with any great honesty that I feel your pain uh but I understand uh what what you're going through and I know it can be difficult uh and difficult and challenging at times so uh speedy recovery my friend and and uh, hopefully you'll be back out in the golf course in in short order um very Thank quickly you. if you wouldn't mind Byron yeah you know always there for you um maybe give us an update on uh, some of the projects that you've been working on. I know when we last spoke, uh, you were uh, getting ready with a, an opening for a new uh, golf school uh, called the Casper Swing Lab uh, with the OC launch pad in Irvine, California. Uh, what's the status on that? Is that uh, uh, up and going or is it still uh, still in uh, its earlier uh, phase? Well, it is. In, it certainly is in its earlier phase. We had a, a piece of equipment that broke, and um, and so we had to put things off for a better part of about three weeks. Um, but it is up and running now. Uh, we have a full staff of health professionals um, and therapists, uh, as well as myself and another golf professional uh, that is local to the Orange County area. And, again, you know, the thinking behind the uh, Casper Swing Lab and the OC Launchpad is to create an environment where it is very easy to understand and take the time to understand the game of golf and your personal uh, body and uh, physical attributes and injuries and what it really takes in order for you uh, very personally to become the golfer that you want to be. Um, we have a lot of uh, ladies that are coming in for tuition because they, they like the one-on-one without having a lot of prying eyes. And, um, and of course, we have a lot of people that have, have, have had injuries, much like myself, that really want to enjoy life, um, including golf, but um, are faced with the fact that they're going to have to change a few things around in their life in order to, to do that. Um, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kismet, I, I guess I should say, because having been injured <laughs> so severely myself, um, I have a very, very vested interest in, um, in helping the people that come to see us because, um, I understand how debilitating, um, an injury can be, especially when it comes to doing something that you love to do. And there's a lot of golfers out there that probably would be playing golf, if they knew that they could do it without continuing to re-injure that particular part uh, of their body that is more sensitive than others. So, you know, it really is about making a difference in people's lives in general, um, specifically for myself and my clients, golf. Um, But it really is a wellness center, uh, a place where you can come and and feel good, um, get a smoothie, uh, understand nutrition, Mm. uh, see a therapist, uh, and get a one-on-one or a small group uh, golf lesson uh, in the comforts of a wonderful studio with state-of-the-art equipment. Wow. Now, if they want to, um, Byron, I know we get the information the last time, but if they want to go and learn more about that, um, I believe they can go to your website correctly. Uh, if that is that correct, ByronCasperGolf.com? 
Yeah, if they go to ByronCasperGolf.com and uh, click on the menu to the left, it'll bring up uh, a page uh, specifically talking about Casper Swing Labs and what we're uh, what we're accomplishing um, in the world of golf as well as health. It will also give you a uh, a link um, to either email um, or give us a call and set up time to come in and see us. Perfect. Um, we'll read that out again um, a little bit later on in the broadcast just to remind everybody uh, when we get ready to close out. So if I forget, uh, remind me, okay, <laughs> Byron? Cause, you yeah, know, oh, absolutely. We'll get a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. It's... <laughs> You know, we're we're both getting up there in years. I'm a little bit, I think, older than you, so uh, my memory sometimes slips. All right, Byron, I want to talk to you. Uh, you know, I thought, you know, we've talked before. You and I privately have talked before uh, about this particular area, and I wanted to get your thoughts uh, on this. And I'm talking about, of course, junior golf. And lots of youngsters uh various ages, you know, have that uh, interest in, in getting into junior golf. Um, but sometimes it involves a discussion, and uh, you and I are going to have a little bit of a discussion here. So I would like, from your perspective, and I'll certainly throw my two cents in there as well, because obviously you, you do have um, a little one. Uh, walk us through, if you will, the discussion parents should have if their child is interested in playing golf as a junior, and what are some of the do's and don'ts that should be included in that discussion. So obviously if you've got a, a child that's come to you and said, you know, mom, dad, you know, I, I've been watching Tiger or whatever on TV and that kind of looks like fun. Um, we know kids sometimes can get wrapped up and want to play a lot of different things, uh, but golf is a little bit different. It's, it, it's a little bit more challenging and it's also, let's be honest, it can be a little bit more cost, uh, you know, uh, indicative. So we want to make sure that, that conversation is is one that's uh, is definitely going to be given. So, what would you walk us through a little bit of that discussion? What should parents be, um, I guess, inquiring about, asking the child about, and what steps should they do uh, or take if they want to get their their child involved in a junior program? You know, it's interesting. Um, I'm glad that you asked that question. Recently, I had an opportunity to volunteer at the uh, I think it's called the the uh, uh, pitch, uh, pitch, putt, and drive, or, or I'm sure I've got the order wrong, but um, uh, specifically for junior golfers. Uh, and, you know, as I was working um, and, and with some of the other volunteers and the people that run it and paying attention to uh, the kids that were there, it was very interesting um, to me because I actually uh, took the time to pull one of the parents aside and um, talk to to him and his his partner about their daughter. Um, and the reason for that was because she was a eight-year-old that um, you could tell within her first swing that she had a ton of natural talent. And my first question mm-hmm. to the parents was, um, you know, how, how does she have this? Is this something you guys do? Is it um, and it turned out that neither of them were golfers, um, but that she had played a lot of golf with her uh, grandfather and um, mm-hmm. and just basically had a love uh, of the game. And so I had spoken to them and I said, you know, she is an ideal candidate for really promoting the game of golf because what you don't want to do is you don't want to promote the game of golf too heavily to a junior golfer that is kind of indifferent about it. 
Um, if they're mm-hmm. indifferent or on the fence, then you need to make that a fun experience for them and take away right. the pressure of having to learn or do this right or that wrong and take all of that pressure away for somebody, you know, for a junior golfer that's on the fence and make the experience. But every now and then you will find a, a child that just has an extreme amount of talent and they don't give up. You see them hitting ball after ball after ball until they get it right. And that's pretty rare. Um, I'm sure we see that in a lot of different sports, um, but being an expert in golf, that's that's what I'll talk about. And so I think there's multi-facets multi, multi you know, facets to how you would talk to a parent, depending on what their child is, is showing as far as talent um, and as well as showing whether or not they really are enjoying themselves. Um, I think that us as parents, we have a responsibility to, one, um, kind of guide, maybe not push, but guide or help um, kids into not only a sport that they love, but something that they feel that they can actually do something with, um, whether that's playing on a high school team or playing at, in little local tournaments. Um, it's great for them. And I've seen it time and time again where going out and enjoying the game of golf with a family member or with friends has a trickle-down effect that can improve every aspect of your life. But again, I really put the emphasis on making it enjoyable for the juniors because that really is the key to keeping kids in the sport of golf. We've all seen time and time again kids that showed incredible potential, and then when they get to be 15 or 16 years old, they just fizzle out. That happens a lot more than I think we we even realize. And I I would guess from all of the students that I've worked with, um, and this is just a guesstimate, but from all the students and families that I've worked with, I'm guessing that about 50% of those kids that end up falling away from the sport do so because they just feel far too much pressure. And I think that there's a time for pressure, but I think that that comes more at the – teenage and onward years rather than the real junior golfers that we're just trying to get interested in one, the sport because we need golfers in this sport. And two, it really creates a a level of camaraderie that you don't find in other sports. How many other sports can you sit and have a conversation between shots? How many other sports can you constantly learn and still feel like you don't really know everything about it? And I think that's one of the beauties of this beautiful game of golf. Yeah, well said. And and that is challenge. I, I want to go back just for a second, though, because you, you you obviously rolled out the point that, that I was looking for. Um, and that is, and I want to use this young lady that you, you gave as an example um, to continue on our discussion. You know, you, you said that, that she obviously learned to play uh, and enjoyed playing with her grandfather. One of the dangers, and you, you pointed this out, is is really pushing, um, because even though she's got certainly some ingrained talent, she may not necessarily have a desire uh, to play competitive golf. Her only connection may be it may be something that that's special that she shared with her grandfather. That may be a, a unique experience that she shares a memory, if you will of something that her and her grandfather uh, have in common. And 
one of the things that I see as well, and I'm sure Byron, you you would concur with this, is when a, when parents see that their child uh, is either excelling or shows an inordinate talent in in one area, and again we're, we're talking golf, all of a sudden it's well let's get the coaches in and let's get this in, and it may not necessarily be what the child wants. So that's definitely part of the discussion that we have to have with the parents, and that is let that unfold naturally. Let those talents continue to grow. And if the child shows, um, you know, a vested interest in wanting to take it another level, and it's not just, hey, you know, I'm, I'm playing with my granddad here, um, then that might be time to have a discussion with the child and say, Let, let's look at some options here. Would you agree with that? You know, I, I would agree with that 100%. And I would also throw in there um, as a caveat to, to that comment that don't be in a rush to get your child um, golf lessons because, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I recently, as in um, about three and a half, four weeks ago, worked, worked with a teenager who uh, was wanting to make the high school golf team as a freshman. And he uh, he loved the game and just had a built-in love for it. Played a lot of golf with his dad. Um, and after an hour and a half session with him, um, I went uh, three stalls down and started doing another another lesson. And this kid was still there 45 minutes later, um, working on some things that we had discussed. So you know you'll know as a parent when it's time to get coaches. Um, or pros involved with uh, with what your child is doing, but if you rush that and you try to rush the relationship, um, that can also end up backfiring because there's been a lot of times where right. um, if, if you don't gel with a student or vice versa, they're not going to listen to you, and you're going to be frustrated as a professional. Um, fortunately, I have a very good track record uh, in that. I, I've never. Um, I've quite frankly, I've never found anybody that's frustrated me on, on, with regards to uh, learning the game of golf. <laughs> and um, I, I, I've been very lucky, um, and I've taught thousands upon thousands of lessons. Um, but I have been very lucky to, to get people that were interested in really learning everything about the sport. Um, but again, taking the time both to find uh, somebody that's going to be good and give you good quality information, but also at the same time, somebody that your child is willing to listen to, um, I think are important factors. Yeah. And, and I think too, you know, and and I look at this more from a collegiate, obviously there's other steps beforehand, but you know, uh, this is something to you. You raised a very interesting point. You know, a lot of times our juniors will get out there and, and be playing and, and having fun and doing great and then they get around that age, you know, 14, 15, and maybe they've they've kind of got burnt out, or now suddenly, uh, you know, they've got some other interests, and they're dropping out of golf a little bit. It might only be temporary in some cases, um, but other cases it may be more permanent. So there's a time, I think, for parents to understand when it's okay to give them a little nudge in, in a certain direction and when to back off. And that's a discussion that they can have if there's already a coach or teaching professional on in play, uh, that's a discussion that really, um, you know, we have to make sure the parents fully understand because sometimes there can be a threshold. If, if 
you don't select the right time to give them that nudge, um, it can be the difference of them getting out of the game altogether uh, or not, uh, you know, maybe missing an opportunity. So it, it's a very delicate balancing act. Um, what do you think about well, that? Well, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, I totally agree. But there's also one thing in there that's even um, – even more prevalent um, that I've seen on many occasions. Um, my particular teaching um, of juniors is really split into really two categories. I mean, you could you could split it into a lot more categories than two, but on a real base level, um, you've got kids that are pre-puberty and kids that have gone already gone through puberty. Because what happens both with men and with with boys and with girls is that their bodies go through changes when they're young. And when they do, they gain strength and abilities and flexibility that they didn't previously have. And if they have the wrong skills um, and try to actually use those as they're getting stronger, then it can create a lot of problems. And so I think that real basic fundamentals and fun are what small children need. And as they get older and get into teenage years, that's when you can take that power and strength that they're getting and really start to do something with if they are so inclined. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. The, the reason why I wanted, <clears throat> excuse me, to have this discussion is, you know, I know that your, your dad, um, you know, obviously had uh, his foundation, Billy's kids. And, you know, there were other, uh, motives behind it wasn't to, to necessarily get everybody playing golf at a junior level. There was other reasons why that foundation was formed. Um, but obviously, you know, it starts at, at the relationships at home first and foremost before it gets out to the golf course with the professionals uh, coming into play. And I, I'm sure that your dad, uh, you know, if he was with us, would, would agree that again, it's okay to, to give them that sort of gentle nudge. And if they show a, a vested interest in something, whether it be golf or, or anything really for that matter, um, it's okay to explore that. Um, but there's a, a fine line between exploring it and becoming uh, obsessed with it. And we see that from time to time again. I mean, I've heard stories, you know, coming out of uh, South Central Florida where, you know, kids are literally being bussed in, uh, you know, to some of the, the top schools in the country, uh, and, and, you know, having to grind it out, you know, day in, day out, uh, to the point where they're, they're literally burned out because they've showed that talent, uh, you know, up at a very early age. And, you know, um, sometimes parents see an opportunity to say, well, Hey, this is what my child is good at and we're going to do whatever we can. And, and, you know, a lot of money gets put into play and sometimes they forget, as you pointed out, that maybe the child just wants to have fun for now. Um, maybe it's not all about well, playing yeah, golf. Totally. They just want to get out, it's, right? You know. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, it's it's not it's not all about playing golf. And you know, you can draw two comparisons, both uh, from the LPGA <clears throat> as well as the PGA Tour. Um, and you know, you can look at somebody uh, like a Justin Rose um, and somebody like a Michelle Wee, and both of them are mm. perfect examples of the fact that it does take time sometimes to make that transition. Yep. I mean, both of them were uh, iconic junior golfers. Um, they, in their in their own respect, both of them had done so much as junior golfers that they were expected to hit the tour 
uh, running um, at I think I, I think right. uh, 18 and 19 years old, and um, and they're both incredible players, incredibly talented. But if you look at them both, it took them uh, quite a few years before they found not their niche, but really found their game and how to go out and yep. translate that into performance and into winning. And um, and I think they are, are two wonderful examples that parents can look at and say, okay, what were the mistakes made being pushed too hard in this direction? Why did it take eight, eight or nine years um, for Justin to really come out and really be the player that everybody knew he could be? Well, you can get burned out in golf. It doesn't matter how much you love the game of golf. There are things right. with regards to traveling and playing competitively that nobody really ever talks about. And just the strain of the schedule of being a professional golfer can be really hard. The strain of being a collegiate golfer can be very hard. Even the strain of being a high school golfer nowadays um, can be hard because the level has slowly crept up. And so I, I would really look at it as a formula of sorts, of enjoying the game first and just really going out with people that that are, are trustworthy and that are family members or close friends and enjoying the sport as a youngster. And then as you start progressing through, um, time, patience, and ability are going to really show whether or not that particular um, uh, junior is uh, is is going to make it or even has a chance to make it all the way, and um, and that's yeah, really and, the world we live in. The one thing I have to say though as well is that the world we live in is slightly different than the world you and I grew up in as well. Um, you know, right. parents that were completely aggressive with regards to their children and sport, I think, is not as extreme as it was even twenty or thirty years ago. I think that uh, we saw a lot more of that then than we do now. Yeah, I, I think there. Yeah, there's certainly, I'm sure, still some around. But yeah, you're right. I think it's. Uh, I, I think well, part of it too is I think kids know that um, you know they're much more educated in a lot of ways today, and they know that they have other options out there, and it's not always to do what you know necessarily mom and dad did. But um, I, I want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, move into another area uh, just a little bit of our, with our discussion here, and that's about uh, women golfers. And, and I want to just uh, preface this first because I've I've sort of thrown some of these numbers around a lot here lately on the show, uh, both on the Coach's Corner panel and, and in some discussions. But, um, you know, recently I talked about on the show uh, some stats that came from the uh, National Golf Foundation. They released their 2018 uh, industry report uh, which came out, I believe, in June, and and we've had some discussions on the panel, and and uh, you know threw a couple things in tonight. So here's one here I want to talk to you about, and and get your thoughts. Um, there are approximately, and again I'll just say approximate with these numbers: 5.8 million women who played golf uh, on a course in 2017. Women account for 24% of the on-course golfer base and 41% of off-course only play. And off-course might be things like top golf, driving range, uh, indoor practice facilities, that sort of thing. So that's where it is. So there's two or, interesting or components big, to the stat. Big shots golf. Big shots golf. That's right. Good plug. Yeah, I'll, I've got, um, I've I'll got give you got an opportunity. I've got big shots when you say there. But, yeah, that, anyway, go ahead. I'm just yeah. kind of teasing you. But, yes, no, of course. No. 
no problem. We'll we'll uh, we'll get back to that in, in a moment. But it, there, there's really a, a couple of interesting things to this component. First off, um, you know, 24% of of women who you know again it represents roughly just under six million women who played in 2017. That's a pretty good number considering there's roughly about 23 to 25 million uh, in the United States that play golf, uh, both men and women. So that's a pretty healthy number. Mm-hmm. Um, and and 41% obviously again is even more so. Uh, but those are predominantly, I'm sure there's some crossover. Yeah. Um, but there's another stat, and I don't have the exact numbers, uh, <clears throat> that is a little more disturbing, and that is that of a lot of the women, particularly newcomers coming into the game, there's also a lot exiting the game. There still seems to be a barrier uh, of somewhat both on the teaching side and also on the playing side for women. There's still some barriers. Now, obviously, I know there are a lot of great opportunities out there through the LPGA and and uh, and so forth, uh, but a lot of women are, are still complaining that they're not feeling as welcomed or comfortable uh, in the golf environment. So first off, how do we sort of stop that a little bit or slow it down, uh, and, and what changes do you think we need to make as an industry um, because we want more women getting out and playing golf, but if they're exiting golf faster than any other demographic out there, there's a reason for it. What do you think that might be, and and what do you think as an industry we need to do to change that? You know, um, I, first let me say that I, I find that, that sad um, that uh, uh, with regards to that statistic because um, we do. We need a, a lot more people in golf. Um, and it would be great to um, to really create uh, an atmosphere in golf that appeals to everybody, um, both men and women, mm-hmm. um, as well as juniors. Um, I think we got over the hurdle of juniors not being welcome at clubs, um, which we've right. gone through over the last 30 years. Um, and we need to figure out how to get over that, that same hurdle uh, when it comes to lady golfers. Um, I think that one of the biggest reasons is is exactly what you said is they're not feeling as welcome um, uh, when it comes to the golf courses. And uh, you know I've seen it time and time again where you know uh, uh, a woman will want to play golf, but they don't have any friends that play, and it's not easily accessible for them to go and pick up a game the same way as it it would be with a guy. Uh, unfortunately, right. we don't live in a world right yet um, where, you know, if you're a guy and you go to your local club, you can pick up a game pretty easily just by standing around. And um, one, I don't think that women have the confidence in golf yet with regards to that. I think they feel like everybody's watching them, and because they haven't put in the, the necessarily the time um, in order to get really good, um, it, you know, they feel that all eyes are on them. And we need to change that. We need to change the idea of if you're not good yet, that you can't go and enjoy this sport. I think all of us, right. um, all of us men, should make it a job, a a part of our golfing um, and the love of this game, to try to make the environment much more friendly when it comes to women and to invite them out to play golf. And to have a little bit of patience uh, when it comes to them not being as good as maybe the people that they're playing with. And, you know, you can trace that right. all the way back to junior golf. And, 
um, and all of the junior golfers that, you know, are trickling down from the last 30, 40, and 50 years played this game so much that it's almost second nature. Even if they're a 15 handicap, they know the rules, they know how to hit a ball, et cetera, and they can go out and have fun. So we need to make the environment on golf courses much more friendly um, for lady golfers. We also need to make and put into place, I think, more programs, including uh, uh, women's clubs and um, women's mornings, where golf courses only allow uh, women to go out and play um, on that particular morning of the week um, or afternoon or whatever schedule suits um, the, uh, you know, their club and the, the, uh, the, the area that they live in. Um, but really it comes down to making this sport friendly, not only for women that are playing the game now, but also for the junior golfers um, that are girls that we really want to promote this game to. They're going to make a big difference in the world of golf. And we've seen a little bit of it with the LPGA being the fastest-growing right. tour and the fact that they really truly are the only real international tour out there um, when it comes to, you know, you look at the, the international quality of the LPGA and it is it just is mind-boggling. It blows my mind how well that they've grown and, and how well they've done as they've grown. And we need to get that mm-hmm. and have that trickle down to junior golfers. We need the environment more friendly. And I think we need to copy done with men's golf for years, and that is have lots of different programs available so that women don't feel like they're out there doing it on their own, that they feel like they've got people that they can go and play with on a weekly um, or biweekly basis. And also good LPGA or, or um, PGA lady professionals. Yeah, and and you're exactly right. You know, this was um, you know a conversation that I've had before, um, and I think this is something too. You know, one of the things that if I was to to be critical of the industry as as a, as a general rule, I think one of the things is that can be very intimidating, particularly for women, is something as simple as walking into the pro shop. Um, you know, because obviously for most golf courses, that's where you're, uh, unless you've pre-booked, you know, you're walking in and, you know, you've, you've got an assigned, uh, tee time and now you've got to go and you basically got to check in. It's at your, that's your front desk, if you will. Um, and a lot of times for many courses, you have men behind the counter. Um, you have men servicing the pro shop. So if, for instance, um, if you're coming in as a group, it's not maybe quite as intimidating because you've got you know safety in numbers. But if you're coming in on your own and maybe the other gals haven't gotten there yet, um, it can be very intimidating um, because you're maybe not I quite totally comfortable agree. with uh, with everything. And I would like to see, and I've I've said this you know probably a thousand times to people. Um, I really think it would be a smart marketing um, approach for golf courses, especially given the environment that we have in today's um, climate and economy and that, to get more and more women running the pro shops. Um, I think they do a much better job of organizing it. Um, They're much better at retail than men are. 
And I think that they would – I mean, I, I can't begin – and I, listen, I, you know I love this game, but I can't tell you how many golf courses, I, clubs I've walked into. And, you know, when you walk into the pro shop and you look around, and it, it's – I mean, I, I've seen better-looking displays at uh, Dollar General. Uh, and I mean no disrespect <laughs> to Dollar General or any other organizations, but, um, you know, that I have in there. And it's just because – they don't know how to make it uh, appealing, and I know that you sometimes you have to do what you can with you know work with what you got, but I just think that women know how to display things much more uh, appealing. And I think as a woman, if you walk in and you sort of see a woman's touch in that pro shop, already that brings down a little bit of barrier. Even if there's some guys in there you already know that there are other women involved in that organization. So there's a certain comfort level, I believe. Maybe I'm wrong, but what do you think about that? No, no, I think, I think you're correct. Um, I think that, that that's certainly a, a piece of the puzzle. You know, it shows you how similar you and I think, because I've, I've thought for a very long time that there needs to be at every golf course that has, you know, any sort of women's program or wants to have a women's program, they need to have a concierge, um, a woman concierge that specifically is there to uh, promote and bring in uh, more women golfers. I think that one thing alone would go a long way to getting um, uh, women in the local areas to go and play golf, um, giving them somebody, giving them a contact that they know they can create a rapport with. Because for years, your golf pro or your assistant golf pros in the pro shop were your go-to guys. They were the guys you grabbed a cup of coffee with and chatted about the weather and the latest news and other sports. And I think we need to give that same environment um, to women um, and appeal to what they want. Um, I totally agree that they um, can create an environment that is uh, very user-friendly. And I, I, you know, I'll bring up mm-hmm. this example. I had the pleasure of hiring um, uh, the only uh, female director of golf in San Diego uh, four years ago, um, Roxy, and she was uh, incredible. And everybody was saying to me at the time, you know, you're really going out on a limb, um, you know, hiring a woman director of golf. And, you know, it felt right. And she was extremely qualified. And sure enough, two years later, she had a rapport with every single person that came into that golf shop. And when she eventually left, uh, you know, last year, um, it wasn't just the lady members and uh, the women that were upset that she was leaving. It was everybody that was upset because I think that, that a good woman, PGA professional or golf professional running a shop can do a better, uh, well-rounded, um, and give a more well-rounded experience to every golfer that comes in. And that's something that yep. we need to remember, uh, um, especially in today's world, that you know we want people to come in. Golf courses only survive because people play their golf courses. And the reason people go and play golf courses is, yes, they like the golf course, um, but it's also about the rapport and the relationships that they have when they go out to that golf course. Yeah, I, I agree. And and I think that, you know, I've always found it very interesting that for an industry to market 
itself um, for products and even services that they would market predominantly to uh, men, given that statistically it's been proven that women are far superior uh, when it comes to uh, decision-making, when it comes to -to day-to-day shopping and things like that. So it would only, in my mind, make more sense as an industry for us to be looking in a direction that's saying, if we want to get more women out playing golf and having them stay, then we need to start catering uh, to more women, as you suggested, in not just in the pro shop, but in, you know, again, having a, some sort of a, a concierge that, that would greet. And, 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 and there are, I know, some like that already uh, in maybe some of your bigger centers, uh, but it has to be a much broader. And I, I'm very excited, and this is something I'm going to actually suggest uh, when the time is appropriate. But as I'm sure you're aware, uh, a little bit later this season, in fact, not too far down the, the road, uh, Susie Whaley, of course, um, who has been with the PJ of America, is going to be uh, the new president, the first female president of the PJ of America. And I, for one, am very, That's very exciting. excited about that. Be- yeah, because I think and I hope um, that she's going to bring a little bit different perspective. Um, and, and I know there's a lot of great things with the PJ of America. Um, but I think there is a change. Uh, I hope that she will be able to bring, I'm not exactly 100% sure what all of that may be encompassed, but I would like to see some changes made. Um, and I think as an industry, um, it's, it's long overdue. And I hope that she, uh, and I believe that she has the, the strength and the determination and and the fortitude to be able to make that happen. And I, I for one, will, will uh, support her 100%. So it's going to be very exciting. You I believe that both. takes place in November. Yeah. Um, yes, you, yes, you let and me, me ask both. You, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I'm very excited uh, about seeing that. And just another quick stat on that, too. Uh, newcomers to golf, uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, are very diverse. Uh, 35% are female. Uh, and this is new golfers. It's talking about 26% are non-Caucasian, uh, which, again, is also another interesting stat. Uh, and 70%, which I found one of the most interesting of this, 70% of all newcomers to golf are under the age of 35. So, uh, mm. again, this tells you that there is a younger, uh, even the millennials are, are getting into it in some form or fashion. Obviously, uh, again, uh, Big Shots Golf, uh, is is well, it shows uh, you the making, desire uh, there. I mean, yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, it shows you. It's really what that what that statistic shows me, Ted, is that that statistic shows me that the desire is there for the younger yep. generations to enjoy this game and to sustain this game. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not. I'm. I certainly don't feel old. Okay, at 50 years old, I I would be the first to argue <laughs> that um, uh, that I'm not old yet. Okay, but. Um, you know, the reality is that that statistic shows that the desire is there to learn and enjoy the game of golf. And as golf professionals and owners of golf courses and managers of golf courses, it is absolutely our duty to promote that and to find new ways to help keep these people 
um, both men and women involved in the sport. Yeah, I think one of the one of the concerns has been, and and uh, I, I'm not, you know, carving this in stone, uh, Byron, but I think one of the concerns has been um, there's sort of been an underlining fear of uh, from traditionalists that have enjoyed golf as it has been and as was and will ever be, you know. And I think that this has sort of been um, what's kind of turned some people off. And, I, and, and I, I'm all for uh, the traditional form of golf as, as it is, but I think there's also room uh, for new. For instance, um, you know, and I'm going to let you give a, a plug here for uh, Big Shots Golf, you know, these types of, of venues uh, you know, coming out there and, and enticing and getting, and I'm going to mention another as well. Obviously top golf has done extremely well uh, in that category. Um, there's no mistaking that. And they've, even though that's not what we would classify as traditional golf, it's, it's enticed them in a way, uh, and, and opened, if you will, the proverbial can of worms. And I think as an industry to capitalize on that, we need to now move them from that. They've, they've sort of been bitten by a different bug, if you will, from what maybe you and I uh, growing up in, in a traditional sense. But nevertheless, they've been exposed to a game that can literally not only give them enjoyment playing uh, for the fun of it, playing competitively or whatever category you want, but can also open up doors business-wise for them as well once they understand some of the many benefits that can be reaped uh, learning to play this great game. So there's an opportunity, sort of a marriage, if you will, from the industry to you know, create new ways of enticing the younger generations particularly, uh, but yet at the same time, we're not sacrificing some of the traditional uh, components of the game either. Um, what, what do you think about that? You know, I agree, um, except that, you know, I, being somebody that's always been a traditionalist um, and growing up with a very, uh, you know, old school father who um, was very famous in this sport, I would say that I think that, you know, tradition is a wonderful thing and history is a wonderful thing because we, we can yep. learn and grow um, from our history. And I don't think that history or tradition should ever be forgotten. Um, but in saying that, right. I believe that, we also have to move into, you know, we've all heard that expression, move into the 21st century, but we, we do need to move forward. Um, and, you know, a, a, a quick example of that would be look at equipment. You know, we're not going around playing with mashies or long nose spoons anymore. We're playing with balls that go a mile and um, state-of-the-art equipment. And so... Um, you know, it depends on what you really talk as a traditionalist. A traditionalist um, could be somebody that wants to still go and play hickory golf, and that's great, and that's wonderful, yep. and there's an outlet for that. But we do need to come right. into modern times. We do need to create, again, an environment that is user-friendly for everybody. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't matter your race or your sex. What matters is that you have a love and a desire to learn the game. I mean, that's really what's important, and, um, yep. and, and, and the camaraderie and the acceptance of that camaraderie um, is so important. I would love to see a day when um, women's groups were going out and hosting their own tournaments and running their own organizations, and I know we have that already, 
but we don't have that to the same extent that the the men's golfing world has had for for decade after decade. And so we definitely need to create that um, and and make it um, a lot more fun um, and also show how it can be used in their business. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly right. And and we are seeing, you're right, Byron, we are seeing that now uh, starting to happen. And again, great organizations like the LPGA um, has, has done just that with a lot of their programs, Girls Golf um, program and, and many others out there. And uh, by having great ambassadors of the game, much like your father was an ambassador to the game um, in the women's uh, market, I mean, we've got um, obviously some that are no longer with us, but uh, Shirley Spork and uh, Marilyn Smith, who are uh, of the original founders of the LPJ, uh, you know, many years ago. In fact, I'm going to be, uh, along with my good friend uh, Cindy Miller, we're going to be interviewing Marilyn Smith um, and uh, Debbie uh, Whitekiss next Tuesday on the Women of Golf show. Uh, Marilyn, of course, has, a, has an upcoming tournament, uh, I believe it's October 1st, um, and uh, she's going to be coming on. And, of course, she's uh, well up there in, in, uh, in years, but still very active in, in the game and, and helping it to grow. So, you know, we need to get some of these traditional pioneers, if you will, uh, in women's golf, uh, more of them out there and, um, and, and do just as, you know, as your father did uh, in his later years, you know, when he was no longer playing as competitive as he once was, but he was still out there helping in, in other ways to, to grow the game. So um, I think we're, we're on the right page here, and I think that uh, there's exciting times ahead. And as you suggested, it doesn't mean that we have to, and we definitely don't want to forget history. I think that's an important part to understand where you come from um, is important and vital to understand where you're going to go. Um, but you also have to be willing to entertain uh, new and, and innovative ways to, to draw people to the sport, and there's a lot of great ways to do that. Um, Byron, I well, hate to say this, but I mean, <laughs> remember, we're, it wasn't until I'll, – I'll, I'll leave you with, with one, one other example, and that is the fact that it wasn't all that many years ago. Um, in fact, I, th- I don't know if I was even born yet, but it was probably right around the time that I was born where they were still using a different-sized golf ball um, overseas. Yep than we were here in America. And again, that's just another example of, um, again, coming into uh, more of a modern age. Well, we need to keep that vein going. We need to keep keep that idea going and continue to make small tweaks and changes to the game that make it a lot more uh, user-friendly, especially for juniors and especially for women. Yeah, I agree. Um, Byron, uh as we wrap up uh, in the final moment or two, uh, let the folks know if they want to uh, learn more about Big Shots Golf, where they can go to do that, and then also about uh, the Casper's Swing Lab and Wellness Center, uh, where they can go to get information yeah. on that. Of course. Uh, BigShotsGolf.com is uh, where you can read and uh, learn more about uh, about Big Shots. Uh, really exciting uh, to be involved with uh, the franchise uh, owners uh, in Utah. And um, I'm really looking forward to getting that off the ground. Um, again, it's creating a, a user-friendly, family-friendly, um, friend-friendly um, experience uh, where you can get good <laughs> golf lessons, enjoy some food, um, and enjoy uh, hitting some, some um, golf balls that uh, uh, have all the bells and whistles of some of the other places uh, with the added caveat that um, 
you can go and again get get good quality lessons and enjoy the camaraderie that comes from that. So again, that's BigShotsGolf.com. And then with regards to the OC Launchpad and the Casper Swing Labs, we're doing a lot lot of new stuff right now, including uh, some club fitting deals and small group deals. Uh, I've got a, a large ladies group coming in next week. Uh, there's about 22 of them that are coming in for a series of group lessons. And, again, this is what I was talking about before, that we need to make this mm. fun and friendly uh, uh, for women to come into the sport. And you can find out more about that on com. And, again, you'll have an email uh, a contact and a telephone number uh, that you can reach out and ask any of your questions or go ahead and book uh, sessions uh, at the Casper Swing Lab at the OC Launchpad. Perfect. Well, as always, my friend, um, thank you very much for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. I always uh, enjoy, we, we always seem to manage to have a very interesting uh, conversation and dialogue between the two, and uh, that's why I, uh, I love having you come back, and, and I, I think I can manage to squeak you in, squeak you in one more time before the, the season ends, and we go uh, out uh, 2008. 18. So we'll 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 talk about that uh, a little bit later. But uh, I think I'll have you uh, on one more time before we'll make it uh, uh, number five. But uh, thank you, my friend, as always, and and uh, uh, again, speedy recovery with the with the shoulder. And and uh, I hope you're out there. Uh, uh, don't overdo it quite yet. Um, you want to get on that Champions Tour, so uh, you don't want to do too much damage. But uh, anyways. Good luck, my friend, and uh, I will talk to you soon. And thank you very much, as always, for joining me here on Golf Talk Live. Well, it's a real pleasure, Ted, and I love what you're doing uh, with the show and the Coach's Quarter and the women in golf. Um, So keep up the good work. And to all the, the listeners out there, happy golfing, my friends. Sounds good. All right, Byron, have a great evening. Thanks, Ted. Take care. All right, bye bye. All right was my very good friend Byron Casper, um, international PGA member and co-founder of the Billy Casper Golf Schools. Uh, You can also go uh, on to byroncaspergolf.com and learn a little bit more about the Casper Swing Lab and the OC Launchpad uh, that they've got set up in in California. Uh, You can get more information there. And then also, uh, if you want to uh, learn a little bit more as well about BigShotsGolf.com uh, uh, that's uh, currently going to be in the Utah area that uh, Byron and the uh, Billy Casper Golf uh, Academy uh, are putting together. You uh, can go to that website and check it out as well. Uh, again, just a, a final thank you to all of the members tonight on the Coach's Corner panel. Great job as always, guys. Uh, thank you to John Hughes, Peter Agazarian, Bill Abrams, and of course, uh, Allison Kurt. Thanks, Allison, for uh, for stepping up uh, again this evening to uh, to help out. I appreciate it, and, and I was glad to have you back on the panel. And uh, also to Byron as well, thank you. Um, just want to say to all of you out there, all of the listeners, thank you for faithfully supporting the show and, and tuning in each and every week. And the, the numbers are just uh, very overwhelming at times, just how many of you are, are following the show. And I appreciate it very much, literally from all around the globe. Uh, if you want to uh, learn more about the show, uh, you can certainly, if you're in the golf industry particularly, and you want to come on as a guest, um, whether you be a teaching professional, coach, uh, or maybe you've got a great product or you've written a book uh, that are 
uh, is designed to, to help some of our many uh, struggling golfers out there, by all means, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, my email is ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. Thanks to all of the many sponsors and supporters of the show. Uh, I'm always appreciative of that. Jonathan Laird from South Coast Golf Guide. Uh, Meredith Kirk, who, of course, was a recent guest. Nikki and Tiffany Litherland. Uh, Bernie Pinder from Ontic Golf. Uh, Sean Kelly uh, from linkedgolfers.com and Peter Doyle from Doyle Golf Solutions over in Ireland. Thanks, guys, for all of your continued support. And thank you again to all of the many listeners from around the world for faithfully tuning in uh, each and every week. I look forward to uh, hosting another show next week with, of course, none other than a new fresh panel on the Coach's Corner and another great guest. So I hope you'll tune in. God bless everybody. And for those of you out on the uh, East Coast, from Virginia right down through to um, – Georgia, be safe. I hopefully, uh, many of you have, have evacuated. Uh, it looks like uh, uh, Hurricane Florence has downgraded a little bit, so hopefully uh, it won't be quite as bad as what they originally predicted, but it's still going to be uh, potentially life-threatening. So make sure that you uh, get to safety, and if you've uh, chosen to remain where you are, uh, by all means, hunker down and uh, keep your radio and, and other ways of communication as best you can uh, open in those lines of communication uh, to those that can offer assistance and help should you need it. Uh, again, God bless everybody, and I look forward to seeing you next week right here on Golf Talk Live.